You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. There's a 5th century Greek mercenary who writes, It's one thing to study war, but another thing to live a warrior's life. And, And Jesus has been studying with his disciples in the upper room. But as he leaves that room, he knows that the union with him to which he invites them and us will implicate them in the same conflict he engages now. For he heads from this room to the Garden of Gethsemane and sets his face towards the cross. This is his battle. And those who are with him will face the same crisis in their own lives. And so we look at that, uh, his preparations for that, here in John uh, chapter 15. And I would invite you to open up to John 15, verses 18 through 21. You'll find that on page 878 of the Pew Bible. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Would you stand with me if you're able, and let's read God's word together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. There's an invitation here to the courageous life. It's an experience of God's courage in your life. And I'd like to talk about that invitation in three ways. First of all, the threat of hatred. Then the danger of love. And finally, the strength of a witness. The threat of hatred, the danger of love, and the strength of a witness. First, the threat of hatred. And here's the first point, that Jesus calls his followers to courage in the face of, of hatred. Now, I, I just want to go on record right at the beginning saying, I'm not sure I get this, uh, because as I think about my own life and I read this verse, I, there seems to be some kind of a disconnect. And I'm not being proud here to say this, but I don't really think that many people truly hate me. Um, I, I really don't. People that don't like my preaching, there are people that are not very patient with me. But in terms of people that actually hate me, I I come up with a kind of a short list. And and I bet if that's true of me, it's even more true of you. I mean, who hates you? I'm thinking of my own life. And okay, I guess there's Al-Qaeda, you know. Okay, there was that girl that I danced with in a junior high dance. Uh, There's a guy at Tully's this week that I beat to the last available table. Uh, but I start to come up short beyond that. And, it, you know, and I think, okay, let's say some of those people maybe do hate me, but it's not because of Jesus in my life. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, you know, it's because I am a jerk 
and I've been a jerk and I deserve to be hated. And I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. And yet he says, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. What do you do with this text? You know, I, I feel sorry for those of you small group leaders who are going to go out this week and lead a small group on this passage. And you've done your preparation. Someone said to me at the 830 uh, worship service, I have no idea what, what to talk about with this passage. So, um, and, and, and usually there are two responses. When we come to a text like this, the first response is just to skip over and read on to the next thing that moves us, right? And, and, and I believe me, after this week, I was very tempted to do that. Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard a, pass, a, a sermon on this text, and now I know why. Um, <laughs> the other response to this is to see it as a kind of a license to go out and get yourself hated, you know? Okay, well, I guess to be biblical Christian, I gotta go out and get hated somewhere. And here's where the Christians have been absolute innovators. I mean, we have been really on the forefront of the movement to find new and interesting ways of getting ourselves hated in the world. That's, you know, our hard history. Um, I, I know we've got a lot of uh, great competitors, you know, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, uh, the, the Bee Gees, but, uh, but. <laughs> We have really been on the forefront of this uh, project. And, and it's, I suppose, because we think that we're obeying somehow this passage in which Jesus gives us an expectation that, yes, even we will be hated. But I think we're missing the whole point. I think that Jesus uh, is saying something not about ourselves, but about himself in this passage. Notice in verse 21, it says, They will do all these things to you on account of my name. Not yours, not who you are, not how bad you are and worthy of someone's hatred, not how good you are and how provocative you are, righteous uh, in your own self. But, you know, they're going to do this on account of my name, uh, Jesus. It's it's my word uh, that uh, the world will object to uh, that will provoke hatred. You see, and he quotes here uh, in verse 25 a psalm. Is an illusion. I always find myself interested when there are quotation marks in the Bible. It tells us that uh, Jesus is making contact with uh, some ancient story, and he sees himself as the fulfillment of that. And what he's quoting in verse 25, uh, where he says, They hated me without a cause, is a little bit of Psalm 69. I'm almost sure of it. Psalm 69 is about uh, an individual who's not provocative towards society in any particular way whose only provocation is his devotion, his personal piety. Let me just read you from Psalm 69, verses 9 and 13. You're going to recognize this. Jesus has already quoted in the Gospel of John. The psalmist writes, It's zeal for your house that has consumed me. Speaking to God. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I humbled my soul with fasting, they insulted me for doing so. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am sub the subject of gossip for those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make their songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. They hated me without an offense. Here's a person whose only offense is simply to withdraw into the brokenness of spirit that says, I give up. 
I, I, I quit resisting you, God. I, I'm making contact with the brokenness of my own life and falling on my knees in repentance because I know you are a God of steadfast love. And they'll hate you for that, Jesus says. But more than that, uh, notice that Jesus doesn't speak of people who hate you or us, but rather uh, of, a, of, a, of a personified force he calls the world. It's not individuals in this text that are hating the followers of Jesus Christ. He's not impugning individuals, although individuals will certainly act in hate towards anybody in the world. But what comes against the follower of Jesus Christ is this, uh, is this force he calls the world. Not speaking about the planet, not speaking about the human community. In the Gospel of John, the world almost becomes a fixed phrase for that which is devoid of God and hostile towards him. He, he, he borrows from the Greeks who had this habit of personifying the forces that come against them, whether it's the forces of nature or relationships or whatever. And they have these gods by the names uh, uh, that we know. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, don't think about individual people. Think about a system of unbelief. It's endemic in society because way back when, once upon a time, human beings rebelled against God. They pulled themselves out of fellowship with God and became alien to their creator. And they had to build a whole society on the foundation of their rebellion, on the idea that there was no God in their life. And that society has grown up in many different cultures and iterations throughout history. But all of it is what Jesus calls the world. It's our best attempt to live apart from the love of God. And so he says, as you go out in union with, with me, in me and I in you, you don't do that in a neutral context. You step into a, 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 a context that's as though it were electromagnetically charged. And, and all the iron in your body is going to be you know, repulsed or, or attracted. And be, be aware of that. It's a threat to the hatred uh, of the world. Well, that's the first part, the threat of hatred. But... I want to move to our second point, the danger of love. You see, because Jesus warns his followers not to stumble, but the trap, the trap is not the world's hatred, it's, it's love. That's the second point. The trap is not the world's hatred, uh, but love. And listen, all of us um, want to be loved. We'd be lying if we didn't acknowledge that to ourselves. We were made by God who loves us. We were made for love. Our creator made you with love in mind. And so we're desperate. We can only be fulfilled. We can only know joy in the context of love. How much of our life is a yearning, whether we're aware of it or not, for love? So many people sit in a pastor's office and complain or express their anxieties or their fears and if you really dig around a little bit, you find out that, gosh, if, you know, if they could just sit down face to face with their mother, their father, and hear them look, looking in their eyes, articulate, I love you. It, it, almost half of what they're going through would, would, would just sort of melt away. How often we look for love. 
I was thinking about this, even my rowing experience. This is weird to say, but I wonder, could it have been that my obsession with crew was really about a desire to experience love in, in some way? I don't know if that was the love of my crew coach, Mr. Davis, who hardly ever smiled, or uh, the girlfriend that I didn't yet have. In, in, in all that I was doing, I was passionate about it, I think because there was an emptiness in my life. When we thrash about in the classroom or a dating relationship or a million dollar boardroom, how many of our thrashings and machinations and reflexes are really born out of a, a need to be loved? And the thing of it is that the world offers love. It, it does. It hates you because you are not its own, but it always stands ready to offer some part of you that is still... Um, uh, some part of the world that is still resident in your soul, love. And, and it's pulling towards us. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 16, uh, Paul, uh, Jesus, says, I've said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. He says, I'm, t- I'm telling you all about you know, the hate and, and the love and, and all of these things because I want to keep you from stumbling. Uh, some of your translations will say uh, scan- from being scandalized. It's the same word. And in classical Greek, there was a word, uh, scandalon, which was always used of a, of a bait stick on a trap. The scandalon was the bait stick, which has this kind of double f- feature of attracting you and then entrapping you. If you picture, you know, the old rabbit box that some of us as kids, you know, you put the stick there and you put a, a box over it and you tie a carrot to the stick. And, and the, the, the stick is what attracts the rabbit and it's also what he knocks out and then it ends up encapsulated. So a bait stick, you know, you might put the, the blood of, of a rabbit or something on there if you're after a, a wolf or a coyote. And, and uh, that, little, that little bit of blood is enough to attract, but it's, a, it's an imitation. It's a fraud. And, and, and no sooner does the animal approach that bait trap than, bam, it closes. And they're in a net or they're in a box. And they found that that thing that they att- were attracted by is actually a false thing. It's an imposter. It does, not off- it does not offer what it really promises. And so we see the, uh, that the world's love is, is fashioned in the Sermon of Jesus as a fraud. It's offering you the same thing that Jesus is offering you, it wants you to believe. Look, you can get it here too. We see this in a kind of a contrast. Jesus saying, the world, if you belong to the world, uh, uh, it would love you as its own. Now, those who have been listening to Jesus in this upper room hear an echo of that phrase because John has told us at the beginning of chapter 13 as Jesus comes to wash the disciples' feet that now Jesus comes to his hour. He loves his disciples uh, to the end. He loves them uh, as his own. And so we see the imitation of the world that even co-ops the very methodology of Jesus in, in the atonement. And we notice that uh, Jesus' hour has come and Jesus will say, the world has an hour too, in, in chapter 16, verse 2. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they're offering worship to God. Notice, Jesus' hour is the hour of self-offering. It's his own death. But the, the hour of the world is the world in which destruction occurs, martyrdom. Because this is the way the world will love in the end. It will attract us with images of beauty, but it will disappoint us with its own destruction. It may love us, but it cares nothing for us. So the body image of uh, culture, 
perfect shape, physique, or the academic credentials that are held up as a key to success or the financial status. All of these things the world will dangle in front of our eyes and say, wouldn't you love to be loved in the way that we can love you if you have these things? The writer of Ecclesiastes says, vanity is vanity. Everything under the sun, he says, is vanity. It's emptiness. It's chasing after wind. I've tried power. I've tried wisdom. I've tried pleasure. I've been a hedonist. I've tried work and productivity. And all of these things by themselves are empty under the sun. Because there is one who makes them all meaningful. And that is the one who is our creator, who gives us every good and perfect gift. So they're empty promises uh, the world's. The other thing to notice about the world is it has a power to conform us. That's what the world wants to do. It wants to join you to the pack. You might ask yourself, is the pack going in the right direction? Well, nobody knows, but I don't want to be going alone uh, anywhere. Right? I'd rather go down with the pack than uh, be alone and take my own risks. And that's the pitch that the world makes. Come and join us. Ask any high school senior, what are you going to do next year? Well, I'm going to college. Oh, Why? Everybody goes to college. You know, we never really thought that through. And that's, you know, the, now we go to graduate school after that. And at some point you go, when am I going to actually make my own decision, an original decision about the meaning of my life? It's been so convenient for me to just move from stage to stage to stage because the world has told me that there is something for you in that. Never out of a sense of call or love for education or vocation, but just because it feels more secure to be loved by the world. Jesus will use two different words. The love of the world is phileo love. That's the kind of the shared love of human experience. It's the love that comes with a kind of a mutual agreement, a contract oftentimes. But when he speaks of his own love in John chapter 13, verse 1, he speaks of agape love or agapao love, which is love that's unconditional, love that's self-offering, love that offers itself freely these are the differences. See, the phileo love is going to try to conform you into its norms. It's going to try to inculcate its values to bring you into the team, not just in terms of your behaviors, but your beliefs as well. We see this in Israel, and I think there's actually a, a reference in the background of Jesus' teaching in this text to a story in the life of Samuel in Israel. Let me just refresh your memory on this story. In First Samuel chapter 8, uh, the Israelites come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. Now, there's nothing wrong with Israel wanting a king. Deuteronomy had told Israel to expect a day when they would have a king. And yet, what's happened here, we're in the 400-year period between Joshua's death, Moses' successor, and the first king of Israel, Saul. It's a period of judges. And uh, towards the end of that period, we have, we have Samuel and Samuel has been a prophet and a judge to Israel. He's old in age now, and his two sons are judging, but not doing a very good job of it. And the Israelites look around, and they see other countries on their borders. And they all have kings. And they all have standing armies. And these standing armies allow them to go out and capture wealth from their neighbors and bring them back and enrich themselves and enrich their lives and... How come we don't have a king or a standing army in Israel? We'd be better off if we were like the other nations. And see, that, that's the problem. The problem wasn't that they came to Samuel and said, we want a king. The problem is they came to Samuel and said, we want a king so that we can become like the other nations, the text tells us. 
We want a king so that he can fight our battles for us. You know how Israel was supposed to fight their battles? It's by faith. Because God was their warrior. I had a young man in Los Angeles, actually a really um, hefty, cool guy from Ventura, California, come up to me and he said, Hey, George, um, I'm interested in Exodus 15.3. It says the Lord is a warrior. What does that look like in Hebrew? And I thought, wow, how nice. You know, the young people of the day interested in biblical studies. And so I, you know, I, I printed out the Hebrew of that. Yahweh uh, uh, <laughs> is a man of war. Uh, and... And I saw him two weeks later, and there was this huge tattoo on his bicep. And I thought, okay, that's what's going on. Now I know when you ask me for Greek and Hebrew what you're after. But, you know, he's attracted to this image of God as the king of Israel. God is the one who fights our, our battles, and that's the way it should have been. Do you see the irony? When Israel is given what no other nation had ever been given, the presence of God, who would be their cause for peace, who would be their supply for prosperity in the field, who would maintain their health. These were the promises that God gave Israel for a particular period of its life. Moses would say in Deuteronomy 4, 7, For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God? Whenever we call to him. And Exodus 15. Probably one of the oldest pieces of scripture in the whole Bible. It's a song. And it's a song that the Israelites sing after they watch the waters of the Red Sea close over one of the greatest armies of their day. They say, the Lord is a warrior. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast in the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. These are Israelites. They're slaves. They're not soldiers, and yet they have a king who surpasses the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. They have an army in their lord, their warrior, who can fight any battle, who drowns their enemies in the depths of the sea. And they say, in your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And the song continues. I can't read the whole thing to you, but later on we're given a picture, poetic picture of the nations watching in wonder and dismay. They list Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. They melt away. These are the same nations. These are the same neighbors to Israel that 400 years later they're going to say, gosh, we wish we could be like them. We wish we could have one of their kinds of kings, their kind of power in the world. And the Lord is saying, you, whom I love, want that? It's an imitation. It's a fraud that will conform you to a world you don't want to live in. I wonder if you've seen the movie Zelig, a Woody Allen film. It's one of my favorite movies. I hate to make a recommendation, but I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's a short movie. It's a mockumentary, a documentary format. They've actually clipped in these uh, actual historical characters and figures. But Leonard Zelig, the main character, is Woody Allen. He's this kind of slight uh, Jew, semi-sort of neurotic and nervous man. But the character in this, he's a, uh, he's a human chameleon, they call him. He, he, he has this weird ability to change to be like the people he's with, the ultimate conformist. So he goes to a baseball game, and sure enough, all of a sudden you see him in the wait up in the in the on deck circle with, with a kind of a paunch, and you know, and he's spitting some tobacco, and he's getting ready to, to to play the game. He goes to Harlem, and there, all of a sudden, he's in the jazz scene. He turns African American, you know, and, he, and he's part of the the set. He just changes physiologically. Um, 
So here, here are a few lines. He ends up marrying many women because, you know, he just, he just can't help himself. And he, he, one, one, one woman says, he married me up at the First Church of Harlem. He told me he was the brother of Duke Ellington. Uh, the narrator later goes, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, who saw Zelik as a Jew that could turn himself into a Negro and an Indian, saw him as a triple threat. You know, <laughs> He's obviously got problems, you know, so they, they, they don't know what, what to do with him, so they take him to a psychiatrist. And, of course, in the room, you know, with the, double, the two-sided glass and the film running, and you, he becomes a psychiatrist. He thinks he's the doctor and she's the patient. You know, it's very exacerbating. And finally, this uh, scene culminates where he goes, you know, I've got to get back to town, really. I have an interesting case. I'm treating two sets of Siamese twins with split personalities. I'm getting paid by eight people. And it, you know, towards the end of the film, and it doesn't really give anything away, but you, you, see, you see crowd shots, actual footage of uh, Nazi Germany under the sway of Adolf Hitler. And there in one of the scenes, you can pick out Leonard Zelig there in the crowd. You, you see, it's a critique of human conformity and the, 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 the opportunity of fascism in a, a, the, the vacuum of the world, uh, which has nothing that roots it, nothing that makes itself real or, or, or permanent. That's the trap. That's the bait. Uh, that's why Jesus says, have courage. Be aware that this is going to happen. Nothing is wrong. I want to keep you from stumbling. It's the danger of love. Uh, the world's love. The final thing is the strength of a witness. Uh, and the third point is that Jesus gives his followers what they need to be his witnesses. You've already got what you need. Remember, you're in me. And I am in you. He expresses that in verse 26 in a couple of ways. He says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Do you see what he's saying? Through the spirit, I will be with you. I will be with you. And I will testify in you through the advocate. It's courtroom terminology. It's witnesses, courtroom terminology. Uh, even in our day, we speak of witnesses, but this is an institution that goes all the way back to ancient Israel. Israel has this idea that it's beloved of a God who revealed itself to Israel as one who loves truth, full of grace and truth, God says. Emet and hesed. Uh, truthfulness, and uh, covenant love. And so they develop this habit or institution, if you will, of making sure that nobody ever comes to judicial harm without the testimony of witnesses. That we would rather let crime go unpunished than punish somebody falsely. What matters is what happened. We really care about the truth. And that's the tradition of the biblical tradition. And so Jesus says, it's the same way uh, with me. It's, we need witnesses. Uh, it, it's, it's people who tell the truth to testify or to witness to the same word. It becomes actually in, sometime in the second century A.D. Uh, a fixed term for someone who has the courage to tell the story of Jesus. A martyr. That's, again, the same word. And now you say, oh, George, please, 
I'm not going to be a martyr. I don't want to be a martyr. I've got poultry in my lineage. I'm not interested in this kind of heroism. That's for somebody else. It's for pastors or, or missionaries or famous Christians. Uh, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. You already are my witness because I am in you through the Spirit. And he says, I've been with you from the beginning. Now, that phrase, the beginning, is fraught with meaning uh, for the Apostle John. He picks it up. Can you remember where else it's come up? In many places, it's about to come up again, but all the way back to the beginning of John's own witness to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John wants to tell the story from the beginning. Because this is the most important thing about the story of your life. It's not in the beginning, George. In the beginning, Sue. In the beginning, Sarah. It's in the beginning, God. This is the story that counteracts the hatred of the world. It's the simple story that life begins with God who loves us. It ends with God. And actually, I don't know if it's coincidental or not, John is the one who gets to write the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse or Revelation. And it is a story about God in the middle all the way through. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son, his one and only son, in the middle of history to love uh, this world. And so you say, I, I don't know if I could be a witness. Well, I just ask you, can you tell that story? Not necessarily from beginning to end, but can you notice that story where it's happening in your life and in the lives of, of people around you? I think you know already how to tell stories. You, you come home from a long day at work and sit around the dinner table, and this is what you're doing. You're being a witness. You're sharing stories that give meaning to your day. Or when your grandchildren come over and visit you, and you tell them what it was like to spend the summer back when you were in grade school. Or you tell them about the time that your sister dropped the birthday cake on the cat, hit right on its head. You're telling stories that shape uh, your identity, and you want it to shape theirs. Traditions are maintained by storytelling. When you get together with your high school friend, and you hardly have to say anything to them that wasn't originally a movie line. You know, you're speaking to each other of the stories that have shaped your relationship and that are shaping your life. Uh, still to this day. And so Jesus says, you're already a witness. You already give testimony as you watch for the story of which God is the beginning and the end and the one in between. I was just thinking about this recently. There was a, there was a woman who um, sent a mean-spirited email about a friend of hers. But she sent the email to the friend instead of a third party. You know, be very careful about this. I've heard this story before. Sometimes there's a subconscious thing when you're thinking about something, someone, and you put their name in the uh, two line of the email. And so she gets on the phone. She calls her friend, hoping that she hadn't opened the email. She, she, she hadn't. So she says, look, I, I sent you this email. I, it was really wrong of me. I said very nasty things about you. I was just angry. I, I want to be your friend. I think this will hurt our relationship. Will you promise me you will not read that email? Moved by compassion, the woman on the other end says, sure, I, I won't read it, and then hangs up and has the most uh, a aggravating moral dilemma of her life. <laughs> I said I wouldn't, but there it is in my inbox, and I'd be so curious to know what she said about me to somebody else. Would you? Well, what if there were uh, a web application 
Okay, maybe you're a venture capitalist here. I want royalties. Let's invent a a web application that's kind of an inbox for you. But it's an inbox of email that was never sent to you. It's all the email that people sent about you to other people. You know that email that a disgruntled person sent to your supervisor? Maybe that disgruntled person was your coworker. You know that email that someone sent about you after you dated uh, their best friend and they said some nasty things? Well, would you want to, you know, let's, let's call it um, HateNet, right? Or if, if Apple comes up with it, it's iHate, you know, a little app for the, for the, for the mobile device. Would you want it? W- would you read that email? I bet you wouldn't. I bet you would say, you know what? I don't care about what's in those emails. I don't care at all what uh, the bad things that other people have to say about me. Why? Because that's not the story of my life. Because that's not, none of that is the story that gives meaning. Whatever, if there's hate in it, none of that matters at all to me. What matters to me is the story that says, in the beginning, God. And it's God's love that's shaping my life. It's an experience of that love. It's a conveyance of love. And the story that I want to tell about me and about you is where that love starts to show up. That's what it means to be a witness. And I can tell you there's no force in heaven and on earth that can overcome that simple word. That is the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. It's the word about which Martin Luther wrote in the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus. Let's pray to him now. Thank you, Jesus, for the confidence that comes when we listen to you to understand that you love us, that you are with us, and that whatever resistance we face in this life has been overcome by the witness you've given to us, that you set within us, and that you offer through us. We thank you for that joyful work. We ask that you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear those places in both the great and the smallest of ways where that story is unfolding in our lives. We pause this morning to pray for those brothers and sisters in Christ who live in countries that do not enjoy the freedom we do to worship you. We can't move away from this text without being reminded of those whose witness to you It does threaten their lives, who are persecuted in places like uh, Indonesia or India, Pakistan or Egypt, South, uh, North Korea. Or we pray for uh, these uh, dear ones who are in communion with you, and because of that, they are in communion with us. Would you be with them? Would you be their strength? Would the spirit of truth So bless and enrich them that they might be like Stephen, who is stoned and yet whose eyes open up and you open up for him a vision of heaven in all of its beauty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-2000.
7301, extension 117.